0: Good morning, I'm Jesse, I'm the Director of Student Ministries here at Encounter, Uh, and today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, so if you go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 7, Uh, Matthew chapter 7 is right after Matthew chapter 6 and right before chapter 8. Uh, Michael always does such a good job of like walking people to where things are, and I'm always like, man, the way he does that, I'm not good at that. Uh, So just look it up in your index, it's the first book of the New Testament, Seven chapters in, Matthew 7, we're going to be in verses 1 through 5 today, uh, and we're talking about judging other people, being judgmental, so if you'd like to go grab an extra donut so you're in a better mood, we're about to get things going, okay? I won't judge you, I promise. Uh, So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. We're going to read it several times together today as we walk through to really dig in and see what Jesus is saying when he's uh, teaching this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So, when I was growing up, um, there was a cartoon that I loved watching, and it it came on long before I was a kid. probably even on when Dan was a kid. I know, that long ago. There was a show called Rocky and Bullwinkle. And Rocky and Bullwinkle is one of my favorite cartoons growing up. I loved it. Like the the things that they would get themselves into, the bad guys, uh, Boris and, uh, was it Natasha, right? Yeah, uh, they were hilarious. But one of my favorite parts of the cartoon were Kind of in in the middle of the story, they would have these short clips called Fractured Fairy Tales. Do you remember those part? Like the book would open up. Well if you if you if you don't remember, if you've never seen it, Fractured Fairy Tales was a small five-minute retelling of a popular uh, fairy tale that you would have read growing up. Except in this version, something would be slightly different. And what would happen as a result of something being slightly different, by the time you got to the end of the fairy tale, it was way different than what the original fairy tale was, right? Uh, Like, for example, they had uh, Sleeping Beauty was Leaping Beauty, and she frolicked everywhere, and it got her into trouble, right? Goldilocks had three bears, uh, but Goldilocks also struck it rich and opened a winter lodge in the middle of summer, and couldn't get guests to come to lodge, right? So these small details were slightly shifted, and it changed the entire story. And the reason I say that is because I think if there's a scripture in the Bible that is often slightly skewed just a little bit, that's based on something that was actually said, but taken out of context and used in a way that wasn't originally intended, I think it's this one. Matthew 7 in today's culture has kind of become the Bible's version of a fractured fairy tale in the way that people want to use the first three words all the time, do not judge, or you'll often hear, don't judge me, right? And in today's current climate and world and what we see, this passage is actually being brought to the forefront of discussion more than ever before from people who are even Christians, People who aren't believers will quote this, right? I saw this really big politician a couple months ago who was advocating for something that's just despicable. And when he was asked a question about, hey, you know, what do you, what do you think about this? His response was, well, I think conservatives need to look in the Bible and do not judge, right? Taking it completely out of context to champion something that is completely against the word of God. He was using this verse in a way that was not intended, right? And we see it happen. And you'll talk to somebody who's not a Christian and they know you're a believer and I've had it happen to me. Well, you're just judging. The Bible says do not judge, right? And they use, they, they, people who don't care about God's word and care very little about his kingdom in certain moments will become uh, enlightened theologians and use this scripture as a way of making a point, right? Of backing you, the believer, into a corner in, in, in a way to kind of shame you, right? And don't judge me is the mantra that is shouted out by many people in the age of tolerance, right? Don't judge me. And believers who don't get on board are kind of cast aside as judgmental hypocrites. And my, my point In my message today, and what we're gonna cover is not to throw fire or gas on the fire of any of the discussions or disagreements that are in the world today. There's already enough of that going on. There's already uh, too much bitterness and closed dialogues on both sides of every issue that you could ever think of. Instead, what I wanna talk about is this passage and how it's used by much of the world to shame people into being quiet about everything. And also, I wanna dig in and explore, is the way the world is looking at that statement, do not judge, don't judge me, right? Is the way that we're looking at it, when we look at scripture as believers, is the way the world uses it, is it right? What was the original intent of Jesus when he was saying this? as we read in those first five verses, or is this just something that's been changed and, and skewed? So our goal today is to define what Jesus meant in Matthew 7 when he said, do not judge, and so I think in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, what we really need and what people that are going to use it as you know, ammunition for their argument, the Bible says do not judge, what we need is context. Context is massive. It's super important. So let's paint the picture real quick. And oftentimes in youth group, I'll do this um, practice. I kind of read scripture Often like it's a movie because it's like, you know, like movies, like when they fill with music in that moment, that crescendos and everything kind of hangs on this moment. I kind of read scripture that way. It helps me to paint a picture in my mind to kind of be in the moment, right? I'm not going to do soundtracks or anything, but let's just paint a quick picture. So in this passage, Matthew 7, Jesus is preaching to an audience of Jewish people that are gathered on a hillside of Galilee. And we've been talking about it over the past several weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters five through seven is the Sermon on the Mount. And in this passage, Jesus is continuing addressing the ideas of the kingdom and what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And he's teaching to Jewish people on this hillside. And several times they've been going over different things. Jesus has said to his audience that's gathered, hey, you've heard it taught this way, but now I'm here to tell you it's actually this way. And I know you've heard this, but actually it's this, and we've gone over that in the past several weeks together. And that's what Jesus is doing, and he comes to this point, and kind of he's unteaching them. I think Jesus was called teacher, but I think often what he had to do was unteach, right? Bad things that had been taught to these people by crooked religious people that were over them. So he's correcting many wrong ideas that the religious leaders had been teaching, and he's teaching them a better way. He's teaching them the way of the kingdom of God. And that's where we are in Matthew chapter seven. And so far in his sermon, Jesus has addressed such topics as anger. He's talked about lust, materialism, service to others. He talked about prayer. And I would encourage you uh, to take a look back, right? We have our, our website, myencounterchurch.org. We go to Facebook, look at the last sermons, do a review Uh, Check back on the Sermon of Mount and see how you're growing in God's kingdom because we've been going over this and I encourage you to do that. But that's where we are and that's what is leading up to this moment, all the things that he's preached about and then we land in Matthew chapter seven and Jesus addresses the idea of judgment. And so I'd like to read God's word again together in that context, right? Jewish believers on the hillside. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own? You hypocrite. First take a plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And as I've said before at the beginning when we were talking about the way that the world takes this verse and uses it against Christians, right, they often only see the first three words. Do not judge. Bible says do not judge. I've never heard anybody that I'm arguing with say or, or having a disagreement with or whatever say, do not judge. And then they quote the next four verses. No, they always stop right there, right? The do not judge. And most of them, they'll look at the text that looks something like that, right? That's what they see when they look at Matthew 5, 1 through 7, or Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Do not judge. Good word, Lord. (laughs) Right? That's how a lot of us, you know, and that's dangerous because if I'm honest, sometimes I read Scripture that way. Especially when the words start to step on my toes, right? And starts to really hit at things that I don't really want to deal with. I'll often, in my heart, redact a lot of God's words and just remember the parts that I like. And a lot of people will look at Matthew 7, 1 through 5 and just see do not judge. And I think we're all guilty of this to some extent in our hearts, scribbling out certain parts of God's word when it benefits us. Just like, you know, I had a great grandma and I loved her to death, but she took scripture out of context all the time. She'd say things like, you know, um, like when, when Paul and Philippians says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. She'd say it at like basketball games, right? You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. I, I don't think that's what Paul intended when he said that, right? Paul, when he said, uh, um, that was, she would make up stuff too. Oh, cleanliness is like the godliness. I think that's in first opinions. Uh, I don't think that's actually there. Um, but she would say that and she'd say, oh, it's scripture, sweetheart. I'm like, I don't think it is but she would do that all the time right and Paul like for example when Paul is saying I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength in Philippians he's not talking about dunking a basketball or bench pressing or cleaning your house before a guest arrives no matter how stressful that is right context is that he's under house arrest about to go on trial to where he could be put to death for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ so when Paul is saying, I can do all things through Christ, he's, he's instead of being defeated by his circumstances and the situation that he's in, he's taking that opportunity to teach a very young church in Philippi that he can endure any circumstance because of the strength that only comes from Christ. Right? Context changes everything, especially when you're reading Scripture. And the problem with reading This verse or any scripture this way or that way that's behind me uh, is that it voids context that is so important to understanding the meaning and it, it can lead us to misuse scripture. And that's a huge problem. That's a huge problem. Have you ever walked into a conversation kind of at the end of it and it's like super awkward And you like walk up and they're like, and that's how the camel kicked the field goal. And you're like, what? Like I missed so much of what was going on, right? Like you're out of context. This is like 90% of my job as a youth pastor is walking into awkward conversations with teenagers and saying, "What, what are we talking about? I'm a little confused, right? But if you don't have context, that moment is awkward, right? But we can do this with scripture as well. Right? We don't hear or read context and we can improperly interpret what it's actually saying. And in this case, we could get a wrong idea of what Jesus was intending to say when he said, do not judge. So we need to explore context. And there's two types of context I want to talk about today. I know this sounds like class, but I promise I'm going to make it interesting, Okay. There's two types of context that are super important. There's historical and immediate. That's it. I'm only teaching two. Historical context and immediate context. Historical context is important to understand what Jesus, what the speaker, who the author, what he intended in that that moment, in that time, the people he was with. And here's an example, right? So if you're under the age of, let's say, 21 in here, I want you to tell me there's some phrases from the 1950s. Tell me if you know what they mean. What's an ankle biter? (laughs) <laughs> someone that bites your ankles very literal yes Annie someone that's really annoying. nope I guess they could be a yeah a small child right most people that are younger aren't going to recognize ankle biter that's weird we would just say kid right okay what if I were to say uh, that boy's a Bundy anybody know no it means he needs a haircut right that was a saying back in the 50s he ne- but if you say that now if I said oh Liam's a Bundy man Take care of that. He's going to look at me like, dude, Jesse's lost it. What is he missing? Historical context, right? In the 50s, it would have been like, oh yeah, let's take him to the barber shop. But in 2022, there's no historical context. That boy's a bunny. It means nothing. And so that's why it's important, right? We can do that in Scripture. Historical context is important to the interpretation of Scripture. And so In this passage, Jesus' primary audience, like we talked about, was Jewish listeners, right? These Jewish listeners that were listening to Jesus talk about the kingdom of God, believed and worshiped the God that Jesus was talking about, right? But they had been taught incorrect things about that God. And so Jesus was here to correct those things that they had believed that were not true. We talked about how he was kind of unteaching them because of the bad teachings. Most of them, most of them would have believed by virtue of being Jewish that they kind of had it made. That God was on their side and sin is really only a problem for people who don't abide by these certain uh, traditions and things and people who aren't Jewish, these Gentile people or these mixed race people, these Samaritans, right? Like we don't really as Jewish people have to struggle with this because that's what was taught, right? There were these unlovely people, but we're not them. Thank God I'm Jewish, right? And so these are the people that Jesus is talking to. And some of the Pharisees even believed that there were some people, some Jewish people that were not even savable. That they had messed up so big, that they had done something so bad that they were stained and that they were incapable of being redeemed by God. They believed that there were people that were out of God's reach, that there's no way God could remove their sin. And just like a, a shirt with a stain or a hole in it, they would just cast these people out. They would throw him to the side, and that's why when you look at the Gospels and you study the Gospels, you'll see this group of people that the Jewish, they show tons of disdain and hatred towards, like Gentiles, prostitutes, tax collectors, right? And that's historical context, right? Jesus is preaching to a bunch of people that think they're better than a whole lot of other people, and so Jesus is teaching this to them. And the other context that's important, so there was historical and now there's immediate context. Immediate context, in other words, is what happens around this event? What happens before Matthew 7 and after Matthew 7? What has Jesus been talking about before and where is he going? What does that show us, right? And that's important. My brothers and I were having a conversation last week and my brother Jacob was telling me about this inspirational calendar, this Christian Bible quotes inspirational calendar that released, right? And each day, you would tear off the calendar, and it would have a new Bible verse. And he was telling me the story about how this company came out with this, and one of the days that you opened it up, it said, Luke 4, 7, if you worship me, I will give you all of these things. That's nice sounding. Who doesn't want to hear that on a day of your inspirational Bible verse, right? You open that day up, oh, it's Wednesday. Oh, Lord, I'm going to worship you because you'll give me all of these things, except The context of Luke 4-7. Luke 4 is where the Bible records the temptation of Jesus. And Luke 4-7 is not the words of Jesus, but it's the words of Satan trying to tempt Jesus. Jesus, if you worship me, I'll give you all of these things. And yet this company, because they didn't have immediate context, they just read that one verse. They didn't read what was happening before and after. They missed the point, right? And they're inspiring believers with the words of Satan. Immediate context is rather important as well when we look at Scripture. So what's happening before and after, and we see this happen, this people taking immediate context out in today's, like turn on any political ad or news story. People omit and overlook context for the sake of making a point. But we cannot do this as believers. We cannot do this when we read Scripture so rather than in putting our own interpretation on what Jesus meant, let's look at what he, when he's talking about do not judge and not to judge people and pay attention to you know, what you have in your own eye. When he says that, let's let Jesus make it clear to us by looking at those contexts. And so again, we'll read through it with context. So verses one and two, Matthew seven, one and two, do not judge or you will be judged Or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged and with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. So Jesus starts out giving them this idea of a measure, right? In the measure that you use it, it'll be measured to you. If you give an ounce of judgment, you'll get an ounce of judgment in return. If you give a 50 gallon drum of judgment, you'll get a 50 gallon drum of judgment in return. And then he expresses that truth with a word picture. Verses three and four, he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? And here again, we see in this word picture a measure, right? He's saying one person has a speck of sawdust and the other person has a two by four, right? And we see how this person with the plank is ignoring it. But we need to look at what is Jesus trying to, what's the picture that he's trying to paint with this word picture? What is it that he's trying to say? And so we're gonna use immediate context, right? We're gonna look at what was happening before this. What led up to this moment? What was Jesus talking about? Well, we've already talked about it. He spent times in the previous chapters and verses saying things like, you think you're doing well when you don't kill somebody. But I tell you that if you're angry with your brother, you are guilty of murder in your heart. Just being angry, you think you're not in sin because you didn't murder that person. Well, you're in sin just because you were angry in your heart. And Jesus is calling these things that they didn't look at as sin. He's saying, no, that's sin. It's a heart issue, guys. And that's what Jesus is telling them. So this is what's leading up to this moment. You think you're doing well, but actually you're in sin. So looking at context, Going from there to where he is now, Jesus, up to this moment, has been teaching, it points to the plank and the sawdust in my eye as being sin in our lives. Right? I have sin in my own life, and yet I'm more concerned about the sin in other people's lives. Jesus had told him, you know, you think you're doing well because you haven't committed adultery, but I tell you that if you lust after a woman in your mind, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You are in sin. And then Jesus paints this picture of the sawdust in someone else's eye, and yet we cannot see the plank in our own because we're more concerned about that person. He's saying you have sin in your own lives. Deal with that first before you start worrying about other people's sin. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach them by painting this picture to make it clear to them and it's all led up to this moment, right? And when we realize immediate context and we realize that this plank and this sawdust and this speck is referring to sin, it leads us to a truth. The truth is that sin is a self-deception, right? Truth or sin is based on lies. It's when we believe something about God, about ourselves, about others that is not true. Right? Think about the first sin. What happened? Satan got them to believe that something that God had said that was true was not true. Right? They were self-deceived. They thought they knew better than what God had told them. And see, Satan's a liar. He does the same thing today. It's his same tactic. It's his only tactic. And sometimes Satan's, the biggest victories he has is when he gets us to lie to ourselves. Right? When we think things like, especially when we think things like, well, I know I have these things in my life, but it's not that big a deal, right? I, I can handle this. I can fix this on my own. I'll get it together. It's not, it's not that big a deal. I didn't kill anybody, right? Have you ever heard anybody say that? Well, I didn't kill anybody. Yeah, well, Jesus talked about that, <laughs> right? If I was angry because they cut me off in traffic, well, guess what I'm guilty of? I'm not as bad as them. Look at all the people in the world. Man, look online. Thank God I'm not like that mess, See, we deceive ourselves. I, I, I think of a time where I was, um, <clears throat> well, it's fine if this is, it's been too many years, I won't get in trouble anymore. I was once illegal in Mexico. Um, and and um, so I, I, was, I lived there for a couple of years, but what had happened was I had paperwork that I lost, and technically, legally, I was supposed to go get that replaced and fixed, but it was too far away, and it was a lot of work, so I just kind of was like crossing my fingers that I wouldn't get pulled over or caught. And so I, had, I was a missionary, by the way. So it was for the Lord. So it was okay, all right? It was for the Lord. Uh, but I was there, right? And I, and, I, and, I, and I knew that I didn't have the paperwork. But you want to know what the only thing that my, my hope was? Was there was another missionary guy from Spain that was with my team. And as we would travel around, I also knew that he didn't have paperwork. And I also knew that he didn't have paperwork longer than I didn't have paperwork. He was more illegal than me, Right? <laughs> And he had done way more wrong things than I had done with immigration, right? He's from Spain. I could just drive up to Texas and I'm back home. you know. Like, So my hope, my friend Enrique, gosh, I love that guy. But my comfort was that he was more illegal than me, not in the fact that I had my stuff together, right? And we look at our sin in the same way sometimes, right? Man, I, I may not have it all together, but that guy's worse. Right? And we take comfort in the fact that there's people worse than us than in, the, in, than in taking comfort in the fact that we've dealt with our sin through Jesus Christ and we've been redeemed, right And we do that in our own lives because the truth is if we claim or we trick ourselves in our hearts to think that we're without sin, then John one or first John one eight says that if we claim that we are without sin, we make God a liar, and the truth is not in us. and this is important to realize because One of the things I think that we do often as believers in our zeal for holiness and purity in our culture is we ignore that fact sometimes. I think we see the speck in someone else's eye and we pass judgment and we thank God that we're not that person and we forget about all the things that God wants to fix in our own lives, and our own hearts, and we condemn people for having that speck, that sawdust. And what's even worse is oftentimes we'll condemn those people in our hearts Maybe we don't say it out loud, but we have the thought of there's no way that's redeemable. And I'm guilty of this, right? Maybe not out loud. I wouldn't say it out loud. But there's people in my life, I was talking with my wife about this last night. I used to pray that they would come to know the Lord. I don't anymore. Because I've known him for such a long time at this point in my life. In my heart, I've kind of been like, "Well, that prayer is not going to be answered. I'm guilty of it. And maybe we won't say it out loud, but there's definitely people that we write off or we see a post or we see someone living a lifestyle or doing a certain thing and we just go. Ah. And in our hearts, we look past the own things in our lives and we just write those people off. And while in our own lives in our own hearts and our minds, we're doing things and telling other people that you can't do this and yet we have our own issues and in our hearts we may write them off that there's no hope for them, right? Things are only getting worse and all the time we have our own bitterness, anger, things in our own lives, in our own church building, in our own hearts, right? Like where we kind of write people off and you're stained and you're beyond this redemption when all, we've received it as a gift, Right? And just like the Pharisees had labeled these sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes, we do the same thing. And now, we have to remember Jesus is saying, like, there's a problem with that, right? Because if we measure people, if we judge people with that measure, how's it going to be judged back to us, right? And one of the ways that I've found that I open dialogue with people who aren't following God, that aren't believers, that aren't uh, working in the kingdom of God, is to first admit my own sin and let them know that I have struggles and that I mess up, right? Uh, Being in in missions for many years, I was a part of many workshops about evangelism. Here's the best way to evangelize. Here's how you preach the gospel. Here's how you do all these things, right? And many times these things would start out with, you know, um, let let that person know you love them, and I think that's great. And yet, I don't think I ever received a teaching that said, hey, go up to somebody and let them know that you are a mess. Tell them that you are just a ball of sin right? Tell them your struggles. Tell them where you've messed up. Tell them all the things that you've done wrong this week, right? And yet I found with people that I talk to that believe something very different than me, the moment that I share and I'm vulnerable with them about something that I've struggled with, then I have a chance to show them how God redeemed that thing, right? They start listening. They don't just shut me down. And I think we've missed that in in, in our, in our, uh, in our efforts, right, for purity, in our efforts for, um, for holiness, we've kind of missed that part. We overlooked our own messes, right? And so, so far up to now, like we've, you know, verses, you know, through uh, where we've been, uh, the do not judge crowd that we're talking about is probably silently crap, clapping their hands. Woo, not crap not that one. They're clapping their hands saying, oh yeah, this is a good message so far. Do not judge, you hypocritical Christians, right? Don't look at my life. Amen, Jesse. Well, buckle your seatbelts. Hold on because that's not the end, right? We're not redacting all the verses. It keeps going because is that what Jesus meant? Hey, don't judge. Don't say anything. Does it mean that we just let sin go because we're sinners too? I have a plank in my eye, but can I only talk about my sin? And do we turn to blind eye towards other people's sin? Only God's allowed to judge? Is that what Jesus meant? Well, let's look at verse five. And I think it's very revealing about what Jesus is meaning. He says, you hypocrite. First, first take the plank out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, we know that plank, Jesus is referring to sin, right? Because we talked about the context of leading up to it. So he's saying, hey, you have this sin in your own life. Excuse me. Um, If that plank is removed and we take those blinders off of your own life, what does Jesus say happens next? What's the point of doing that, right? So now we can see clearly to do what? To remove the speck from our brother's eye. Jesus does not say in verse five, well, you have a plank in your eye, you should ignore the sawdust in your brother's eye. Pay no attention to it. Just leave him alone. No, he says that when I have cleansed you, when once that's gone, then... Once we've admitted to our own sinfulness, right? Our own need for him, then we can see clearly we can help our brother remove the speck from his eye See, we don't ignore the speck. Jesus finishes this word picture by saying, after we have cleared our own vision, then we should help our brother with his sin problem as well. I mean, picture it in your mind. If someone is gonna do surgery on your eye, you go to the optometrist, would you like them to be blindfolded doing it? If you showed up and they had blindfolds on, you'd say, no, take that off before you operate on me, right? Jesus is saying the same thing here. Now they can do surgery and that's the point he's trying to make, right? It's the reason I am doing this is for you to then go and help that person get their act together, right? Cleanse them. And it's clear that we should not address the sin of others when we read this. It's clear that we don't address the sin of others without first admitting that we're sinners too. Right? Admitting that we're broken people. We're desperate in need of Jesus. We're in need of the cross. We're in need of the resurrection. We're not righteous on our own. And we're not saved on our own. That's very clear. It's very clear through the gospels. It's very clear through scripture. And it's very clear in what Jesus is saying here. But it's also clear for the other side of the argument. That Jesus did not intend for people to use this do not judge phrase in a way to justify or classify something that is sin as not sin. That was not his intent either. See, our culture doesn't get that when they say, don't judge me or the Bible says, do not judge. See, they wanna use this passage to say that you can't say that this is wrong or you can't say that this is wrong because you're a sinner too, right? Doesn't the Bible say that? And that's how they define judgment, right? definition that they have, like don't judge me, what I'm doing is not wrong, don't judge me, but that's not the intent that God had. And they have their own version, like a fractured fairy tale version of what this scripture meant and what Jesus was trying to communicate with the people he was talking to. It's kind of based kind of what, on what Jesus said, but with a twist, and it's taken out of context, and it becomes something that it wasn't. He's talking about the sin in our own lives and he's talking about getting that done first and so that we can then help people that are also struggling. It's about not judging a person's value to God. Right? Remember the context he was talking to people that cast groups of people out because of what they had done or who they were. And when Jesus is saying this, he said, don't judge a person's value to God. Don't look at someone lost in sin and say you're worthless to God. There's no way God wants to redeem you. I'm not even gonna try, right? Not giving up on those people, even in our hearts, even if we don't say it out loud. Jesus is talking to these people who did this as a way of life and he's correcting something that they had been taught that was wrong, right? That's the context. He's saying those people that you've cast out, love them. This is what I'm telling you. Pay attention to what you have first and then go help them. See, we can only help those around us once we've allowed Christ to deal with us and help us in our own lives, and he does this faithfully. He helps us when we call on him so that we can go and help our brother who is struggling, not so that we can condemn them, not so that we can cast them out. It's for a purpose because there's one thing that is absolutely true of every single person in this room. Every pastor you've ever heard preach a message, anybody that's ever drawn a breath or had a heartbeat, there is something that is true about every single one of those people. Everyone you've ever known in the history of humanity at one point of their life has been an enemy of God. And yet, because of his love, Because of Christ's love for us while we were still sinners, he died for us. And he died for everyone that doesn't believe what you believe. And he desires to redeem them. It's our hearts that Jesus is after. And when we read in Scripture and we read in the Sermon of the Mount and we read in the Gospels and Jesus' other teachings, whether Jesus is talking to a Pharisee, to a leper, to a prostitute, to a tax collector, to a Samaritan, to a Gentile, to the outcast, whoever he's talking to, he's about healing the hearts of people. He, he, he addresses their heart first right he didn't just heal them of their physical ailment he also said your sins are forgiven right he was after the hearts of people and that's what he's after in matthew 7 when he's telling people hey don't judge he's not just trying to like make them feel bad for what they've been doing he's after their hearts hey listen i need to work in you before you can work in someone else right let me fix you let me heal your heart that's what he's after Allowing God to move so that, so that in our own lives, when we allow him to move, we can help those around us and relate to them. Man, listen, I get it. I know you have struggles. I dealt with this too. But look what God did for me, right? Look what God, look, look at the log that God took out of my eye. Look at this thing that he saved me from. We have testimonies, right? Testimonies are powerful, The way we overcome the enemy is with the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimonies, right? We have something that's powerful. Allow God to work in our lives and give us a testimony to share with other people to then help them get their stuff together and bring them to the foot of the cross. And that's why each week, as a family, as a church family, we take communion It's not just to take up time at the end of the service or give Michael Fay a chance to come up and play the guitar slowly, right? That's not what it's for. The reason we take communion every single week as a body is it's a reminder to us who call ourselves believers, who follow Christ. It's a reminder to us of what he did for us. It's a reminder of what he's taken from our lives, right? The the logs he's removed from my eye, it's a reminder of what he did for us on the cross, a reminder that we've been redeemed only because of his great love for us. It's a reminder that nobody, nobody is irredeemable. It's a reminder of the absolute power of what Jesus accomplished on the cross And that Jesus can save anybody, anybody, even a wretch like me. And that's why we do it. And so before we enter into communion, I'd like for us to kind of take a time in our seats with the Lord. Thinking about your life. Maybe I've, maybe you've passed judgment on people. Maybe you've written certain people off. Maybe we've taken things out of context and instead of having love and compassion towards a certain group of people that believe differently than me or, or say different things than me or whatever, maybe they're saying hateful things towards you. Instead of praying for them and loving them the way Christ does, we've written them off. Let's take some time um, quietly and just... Seek the Lord. Ask him to forgive us. Remember, it's, his, it's our hearts that he's after. So we'll take a few moments of reflection with the Lord. If you have something that you need to deal with with him, deal with it now.